There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Author Mitch Album visits Theater J in Washington, D.C. tomorrow night to discuss his newest novel, The Stranger in the Lifeboat. He joined me to discuss the inspiration for the novel, as well as his best-selling career from Tuesdays with Maury to the five people you meet in heaven. Mitch Album, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Now we are talking, you have a brand new book coming out called The Stranger in the Lifeboat, um, which is going to be a perfect, you know, gift as the holidays, a uh, little stocking stuffer here as the holidays approach. Uh, why don't you just t- tell us the, the basic premise of the book? Well, the book, it's, it's out now, actually, and it just came out. It's called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. And basically, uh, there's a luxury yacht owned by one of the richest people in the world, and he invites all his rich celebrity friends and business people out for a one-week excursion out in the Atlantic off the coast of Africa. And before they come back in, mysteriously, the boat explodes and it's wiped out. Everybody is killed and only 10 people managed to work their way to a life raft, five of whom were the rich guests and five of whom were staff help on the boat, cooks and deckhands. And they're in this raft for three days. Nobody comes looking for them. They're running out of food and water. There are sharks in the water. They're desperate for help. They're crying out in their own different ways. And then suddenly they see a body floating in the water and they pull it into the boat. And it's this young guy, very average, nondescript looking guy. And they pepper him with questions and there's no answer. And finally, one of the passengers says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. And that basically begins the the book. Those are the first few pages of the book. And then it's all about what happens as as these people are out in this raft with this guy who claims to be God, but doesn't look the part, doesn't act the part. He gets hungry, he gets thirsty, he falls asleep a lot. And they say to him, okay, sure, right. Yeah, you're God. So, so what are you doing here? And he says, well, haven't you been calling me? I came because you called me. And they say, oh, so you're going to save us? And he says, well, I can only save you if everyone in this boat believes I am who I say I am at the same time. And it becomes a, a parable about help and what we believe in when, about help coming to us, whether we, whether we only accept help if it looks exactly like we expected it and when we expected it, or if we kind of see the universe in a bigger way. Wow. So definitely some, some spiritual themes here for the, for the holiday season, for sure. Now, how, how did you come up with the idea? Were you reading like the... Were you, were you reading the, the Gospels with Jesus walking oh, on the no. water or uh, did you watch uh, Life of Pi? <laughs> no, 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 nothing like that. I, I try to uh, come up with ideas that I want to explore before I come up with plots. And uh, like 
you know, when I wrote the five people you meet in heaven, I didn't start with a plot about meeting people in heaven. I started with the idea that I wanted to write a book that showed that everybody matters, even though people think that they don't count or they die without having affected the world, that everybody affects the world in some way, even if they've affected only one person. Then I wrapped the whole story about an amusement park and five people in heaven who you meet, who tell you what your life is about and all that. But that was after the idea. In, in this one, you know, the idea was, like I started to say, especially in the last two years during pandemic, we've been asking for help in a lot of ways. We've been asking, you know, keep our jobs, uh, you know, our businesses, please don't let us get sick. Uh, my, my relatives in the hospital, please don't let them die. And it occurs to me that we expect our help to sort of arrive like we ordered a sandwich in a deli. You know, we give it a couple of minutes and then if it doesn't come out exactly the way we want it, we get upset. But I've learned in my life that a lot of times when you think your prayers aren't being answered or the universe is not responding to you, you wait five years or 10 years and you look back and you say, well, you know, that thing didn't go the way I wanted it to. But actually, then because of that, this happened and then this happened. I ended up meeting the woman who became my wife and then we had our kids. And so so I guess when I look back on it, that was kind of the best thing that could have happened to me. Well, if it was the best thing that could have happened to you 10 years from now, it's probably the best thing that could happen to you now. It's just a lot of us don't trust that. So I wanted to write a story that was kind of about that. And having gone through a lot of personal tragedy uh, over the last few years, including losing uh, our child, our little girl that we adopted from Haiti, um, a lot of it had to do with healing and just sort of recognizing that help doesn't always come the way you want it. So that's what prompted the story. And then from there, I took it out to the ocean and the, an adventure story out in the middle of the sea and sharks and tidal waves and all that stuff. But it begins with an idea. Wow. Well, yeah. Sorry, sorry about your loss with, with, uh, with your adopted daughter there. That I, I can't even begin to imagine that. Um, but but it's, I'm, it's, I do think it's, it's inspiring that you you know you're you're able to you have this outlet with you know with your with your novels to to sort of work through some of that stuff and I really love the themes that you're talking about of how you know those things that we thought um, you know might have been insignificant or even we thought they were you know tragic things at the time you know and then then you went on and met your wife and had kids you know all that that that's a great theme. Right. And, you know, as you're talking about, you know, this person floating in the that, that claims to be the Lord and stuff in the water, it sort of reminds me of like those great books, like, you know, like The Alchemist or something where people are, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think you're tapping into some larger, larger stuff there. It's it's fantastic. Well, we, our listeners can't wait to check that out. I try, you know, I try to do that in, in, in all of my books to try to tap into something a little larger. Tuesdays with Maury was obviously about the biggest issues, you know, of... Uh, what's important in life once you really know you're going to die and aren't those same things important when we're living and when we're healthy. And by the way, Theater J is doing Tuesdays with Maury, the play going on right now. And I'm also going to be uh, down there November 30th for, uh, for a talk uh, at the, uh, what is it called? Ed Lavich, DC, JCC. I think I'm pronouncing it right. It's 16 and Q. Um, so I'm going to be talking about this as well and about that and about the play and about the new book. But to finish up the point that you just asked, um, in this case, I know that Jason, for example, if I were to disappear from your program right now and suddenly my voice changed and it said, well, Mitch is gone, but this is the Lord. And I'm going to give you, Jason, 60 seconds. Ask me whatever questions you want. 
I'm sure you would have some pretty good questions, right? <laughs> and uh, I tried to put those questions into the mouths of the people, the survivors on this life raft, the castaways, who are a very diverse group, so that one of them asks, for example, you know, well, if you're if you're the Lord, do you answer every prayer? And he says, well, I answer every prayer, but sometimes the answer is no. And you know, that's something that I've sort of had to come to learn to accept in my life. Or there's a moment where, of course, the big question gets asked, you know, why do you let people die? And one of the passengers who lost his wife said, why did you take my wife? And he says, well, I know that every time someone is lost here, you say, why did God take them? But maybe a better question would be, why did God give them to us in the first place? What did we do to warrant the beautiful memories and the sweetness and the kindness and all of that? And I know that when people die on this earth, you all weep for them when they leave it, but I can assure you, they're not weeping. And, you know, I write stuff like that sometimes to comfort myself as much as, as anybody reading it, because as I say, when you lose a child or I lost both my parents in, in the last six years, and you have to sort of come to some kind of grip with the universe about what it all means. And if you do believe that there is anything after this earth, whatever your belief system is, uh, then you would believe that they're not crying, even though you are and you're missing them. And so, you know, I tried to take the philosophies that I've learned as the years have gone by from some wise people or just from life itself and put it into the characters that I create and have those lessons sort of share with the reader. Wow, perfectly said. I love that you deal with these these big themes. You're you're unlocking parts of um, my brain that, and our readers when they're reading it will unlock parts of their brain that they didn't even know they had by just trying to grapple with this stuff. I love that perspective. Um, well, cool. You mentioned um, you mentioned the Theater J production of Tuesdays with Maury in DC. Um, it, it's running. It'll run now through December fifth, and then you said you know you're going to come do do that talk as well on the thirtieth. Um, remind our listeners, uh, you know, I mean, that was like your first, your first book out of the gate. Remind us sort of where you were before you, you wrote that, you know, is it, you know, yeah. your, your background with the, as a sports writer and deciding, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to pen my first book here. Yeah, it was, well, it was quite a different place. It wasn't my first book. It was that, that's actually kind of what made it so unusual. I, I was a, a very, very aggressive, uh, ambitious sports writer and sportscaster. I worked for ESPN as well as the Detroit Free Press, as well as about a thousand other little outlets that I did work for. And, you know, I was never a sports nut. I'm still not, you know, I don't, I don't memorize statistics or I, I'm not encyclopedic with my knowledge of things. I, I'm pretty knowledgeable because I worked in it all these years, but I don't try to memorize who led the league in triples in 1944. It just doesn't matter to me that much. Uh, but I think I was attracted to writing about sports because it has all the elements of human drama. You know, it has, and I, and I always was more attracted to the losers than the winners. And some of my favorite sports columns that I have written had to do with people losing. And the empathy uh, that people have for losers, I found is much greater than, than they have for winners. I wrote a column once, uh, I went to the Iditarod up in Alaska and covered every, every, every step of it and wrote a column about the guy who came in dead last in the Iditarod like nine days later than everybody else. 
because he had lost a dog. He was a pharmacist from North Carolina. He'd never done this before and just wanted to always had read the call of the wild and dreamed about it and saved up all his money for years and came up and ran the Iditarod with these dogs in a dog sled race. And partway through, one of the dogs ran away and he had to stop and chase the dog uh, for several days because you're not allowed to go from one stop to the next without the same number of dogs that you had or else you're disqualified uh, because they otherwise, you know, they feel that people could kill one of the dogs if the dog gets injured or slowed, you know, and they don't want anybody to be encouraged to do that. So he had to chase this dog around Alaska <laughs> wilderness for several days, you know, not moving forward. And when he finished, you know, and, and I talked to him and and I said, you must have been so angry, you know, this dog that ran away, you know, or you must have been so upset. And he said, oh, I was, I was. If anything had ever happened to that dog, I never would have forgiven myself. And, you know, that's what he was upset about. Like maybe the dog would be hurt. And I just thought that was so beautiful. You know, I wrote that story and everybody, you know, reacted to it and everybody related to that. Nobody really cared who won the Iditarod, but they loved that column about, you know, this guy who finished dead last, but because he had to chase a dog around the snowy outback of Alaska so that the dog wouldn't get hurt. And, and so I, I think even early in that stuff, I, I tried to find the humanity in sports that people could relate to. And it wasn't that big a jump there for to, to try to find humanity in writing about an old man dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, but I had written two very successful sports books and I was only interested kind of in, in that career and advancement of my career. And I really wasn't very concerned with any other issues. And then I happened to be flipping the remote control one night and, and came upon the Nightline program with Ted Koppel and saw my old college professor who I had loved when I was back in college at Brandeis University, a guy who I'd taken every class with, who I majored in sociology on account of, who I wrote my honors thesis with, and his name was Maury Schwartz. And I had lost touch with him for 16 years while I was so busy preening myself, you know, and trying to turn myself into, you know, a, a little ambitious machine. And then I saw him on TV and he was talking about what it was like to die from Lou Gehrig's disease. And that's how I found out that he only had a few months left to live. And I went to visit him and then I went to visit him again and again and again. And all those visits were on Tuesdays and I ended up turning it into a, a book to pay his medical bills. I didn't decide I was going to write a book or anything like that. He was in debt for his medical bills. And I, I decided, well, that's the only way I know maybe I can help him raise the money and was able to find a publisher. Even though most publishers said, no, we're not interested. Who wants a book like that? It's depressing. It's boring. You're a sports writer, all kinds of reasons. But I kept pushing because it was for him. And we found one a few weeks before he died who was willing to publish it. And they gave us just enough money to pay his medical bills, which I gave to him. And that was supposed to be the end of it. you know. And when he passed away, I wrote this little book. And then I was kind of aiming to go back to sports writing, you know, but having been kind of changed by the time that I spent with him every Tuesday and seeing what's really important in life once you know you're going to die, as I've said before. And I could realize that a lot of the things that were important that he made important, I was not making important. Uh, I was chasing a lot of stuff that was not going to be of any comfort to me when I died. And it, it really opened my eyes, you know, made me kind of take a right turn in my career. And, but then the book came out and I was planning on going back to sports writing and just, you know, I didn't think anybody would buy the book. They only printed 20,000 copies of it. And it wasn't supposed to be even a blip on the radar screen. And then it took off. 
and somebody read it and somebody read it and somebody else read it and they passed it on and passed it on and passed it on. And now Tuesdays with Maury is the biggest selling memoir of all time. And that is certainly not anything I ever planned. And I don't think it's anything about my writing that's so brilliant. I think it's just the lessons that are in that book that everybody wants to embrace. And so that set me on a whole different path because obviously that's what people wanted to talk to me about, what people wanted to publish me about. Everywhere I got stopped in an airport, people didn't want to talk about sports anymore. They wanted to talk about their mother died from cancer and they read my book before she died and could they share a picture of her or a story of her. So, you know, my, my frame of mind changed and my, uh, my environment changed, my goals changed and I haven't written a sports book since. Uh, and, and, you know, my writing now reflects sort of more of that. And I think in the play Tuesdays with Morrie, which I co-wrote with Jeffrey Hatcher, everybody will kind of see that transformation, uh, but it's a, it's a very, it's a lovely play, uh, you know, uh, at the risk of <laughs> saying something that I write is lovely, but it is, I've, I've, I've seen it now for 20 plus years, it's been performed and it always has a nice effect on the audience and it's beautiful to capture that relationship, which was very funny and um, sarcastic and at times, and, and of course, very poignant as Maury gets closer and closer to the end. But uh, usually the two actors end up having a great chemistry with one another. And I'm sure that'll be the case at the, uh, at the theater J version of it as well. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of tailor-made for the stage, you know, the, the conversation between these two people. So, yeah. um, and, and in a way I actually, you, you sort of laughed that that you know you'd wrote two sports books um you know what was it the autobiography of the football coach Bo how do you say it Schembechler yeah, yeah and the Fab Five yeah basketball Fab Five team. yeah that Chris Weber timeout still haunts me I remember <laughs> rooting for them back ah. at, um but um but yeah the Michigan basketball team but but in a way Tuesdays with Maury you know dealt with Lou Gehrig's disease so Lou Gehrig there's sort of a sports it was in that as a natural transition from sports into a much ah. heavier topic there um and I love that you yeah. say all these people, cancer survivors and the what and the like coming up to you. I mean, it really you reached out to a whole wider audience with that. Well, um, so so after that, after that book comes out, you said the top selling memoir ever. I think it even became like a TV movie, right? Hank Azaria and Jack Lemon, Emmy uh-huh. winner. Um, so at that point, it's you're probably sitting there like, whoa, maybe this maybe this is my new life path. You know, it, it, maybe this is my personal legend. And then, then you decide, all right, maybe I'm going to st- go away from the sports thing again and do five people you meet in heaven. How did that idea come to you? You mentioned a little earlier, but how did that idea come to you? Well, you know, Tuesdays of Morning became such a, a runaway success and uh, and totally unpredicted. I mean, every month it was getting bigger and bigger and we were going, this can't keep up. Right. I mean, this, it's just a little book and, and it kept getting bigger and bigger. And then they made the movie and it got bigger and bigger and it kind of paralyzed me for a while. And it took six years for me to write anything after Tuesdays with Maury uh, book wise, because I was so convinced that no matter what I wrote, it would pale in comparison to Tuesdays with Maury. And, and I especially thought that about nonfiction. If I tried to find a, you know, a, a true story that I really wanted to write about, people say, yeah, but that's not as interesting as Maury was. And so I decided to just go the total opposite direction and try a novel and in fiction, which I had never tried before. And everybody said, you're nuts, you're crazy. People make that mistake all the time. They think they can write nonfiction and they think that they can write fiction. But I knew I, I, I'd always been a storyteller and I had I've been a songwriter and a musician before that. And I'd made transitions in my career before. And, and, and I remember they told me I was crazy to write Tuesdays with Maury. And, and then that turned out well. So 
I said, well, I'm going to do it whether you think it's a good idea or not. And I had had this old uncle of mine who uh, I really adored. He was a World War II vet, a kind of Popeye character, you know, really squat, muscular, <laughs> used to wear those beater t-shirts, but he'd tuck them in for dinner time. So we thought it was formal wear, you know, we'd wear them to the dinner table. And uh, he talked like this, you know, and he, he fought in World War II. Uh, and he would always say, well, I'm a nobody, I'm a nothing. I'd never been in nowhere that I wasn't shipped to with a rifle. You know, that, that's, that was his philosophy. And he died thinking that he was a nobody. Uh, but he used to tell this story around the Thanksgiving table about this night that he died on an operating table for a few seconds, you know, one of those cases where they revive you. And he said that he remembered floating above the table and looking down at the operating table and his body. And then he saw all of his dead relatives waiting for him at the edge of the bed. And of course, as a kid, you say to him, what did you do, Uncle Ed? What did you do? And he said, what did I do? I told him, get the hell out of here. I'm not ready for any of you yet. And uh, apparently he scared them right back to heaven and he went back into his body and he lived like another 10 years. But I never forgot that story because I thought, well, that must be what happens when you die, because he would never tell me a lie. He's my uncle. He's not trying to sell a book or a philosophy or he's not a medium or a psychic. He said, this is what happened. I believe that's what happened. So I took that idea of, you know, people waiting for you when you die. But then I said, well, what if they're not all your relatives? What if some of them are just people who you had five minutes contact with on earth, but right. you changed their life forever and they changed yours. You know, you think about if you're ever on a highway and you kind of start to drift and you drift into another lane and somebody bangs on the horn and uh, you know, you, you snap to it and you go, Oh, well, well you know, and you, and you just, you know, you, you veer away and you avoid an accident. Well, that person might've just saved your life. And by saving your life, you go on to become the president of the United States. You know, that person therefore affected the history of America, you know, and yet you don't even know who that person is. You don't even look at them because, you know, when they beep at you, you never look over and, and see them in it because you're embarrassed, you know? And so, you know, that kind of loose connectedness that we have to everybody, I thought was a really interesting idea to explore. And I created these five people you meet in heaven who tell you about your life. And that went on to become a very successful novel. And from that point, nobody gave me a hard time about writing fiction anymore. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you sort of proved you could, you know, Tuesdays with Maury proved you could do the nonfiction, you know, top selling memoir ever. And then Five People You Meet in Heaven is probably your, arguably your most iconic, uh, you know, fiction work. But uh, right. Of all the ones you've written after that, I mean, I seriously would, would go through one, these one at a time, but I don't want to keep here all day. But um, I'll list them for one more day. Have a little faith. The timekeeper. First phone call from heaven. Magic strings of Frankie Pesta. The next person you meet in heaven and, and finding Chica. Um, of all of those ones after that, do you have one that is like personally touches you the most that makes you say, you know, wow, I'm most proud of that. I, I want our readers to, to go check that out. Maybe they missed one of those to go back and, and read. Yeah. Well, probably Finding Chica, which was a true story. So, so of all those books, I've written 10 now. Three are nonfiction and seven are novels. And the nonfiction of Tuesdays with Maury have little faith and Finding Chica, which was my most recent one until this new one, The Stranger in the Lifeboat. And Finding Chica is a story of not only how I got involved in Haiti and took over an orphanage and and which I still run to this day and will the rest of my life. And I'm there every month. We have 53 kids that we raised there at this orphanage and they're beautiful, amazing kids. Uh, but it's the story of how you become a family accidentally late in life. Uh, when my wife and I adopted one of our kids there when she was diagnosed with a brain tumor at age five. And suddenly we had no choice. You know, she was 
living with us and sleeping at the foot of our bed as a five-year-old. And, and we were, you know, having never had kids of our own, even though we've got 53 kids now in the orphanage. Uh, but suddenly we had this little girl with us every minute of the day. And for two years, it was just this amazing experience. Uh, and even though in the end, you know, she, she, no, no one could save her from this brain tumor, it's called DIPG and nobody lives with DIPG. Most kids are dead after four or five months, but she lived two years and uh, it was an amazing two years that we travel around the world with her trying to get her cured. And meanwhile, I had this amazing family experience and I'm most proud of that book. I think it's the best book I've ever written in terms of writing because I I just threw myself into it and I dedicated it to her, obviously. And it's told like in the second person, it's me talking to her the whole time. And it's not a scary, oh, the kid's going to die at the end book because from the very first page, you already know that she died and she's coming back to visit me. And we're having this discussion and she's telling me, you know, well, why don't you write a book about me if you're going to write a book? And, you know, she talks just like a five-year-old talks and, and there's all these discussions between us throughout the course of the book that way. And I tell her what she meant to us and how she changed us during that time. And anybody who's ever had a child or anyone who's ever, you know, become a family in an odd way through adoption, through fostering, through you know, accident, uh, you know, or whatever, can certainly relate to the ways that, you know, families are like works of art. You can make them from any kind of material. And, and uh, I'm, I'm very partial to that book. I always wanted that. And I probably always will want that to be my best book because she deserves that. So you know, for me personally, that's, that's my most personal one. And all with all respect to Tuesdays with Maury, obviously, and what means and how it changed my career and how much I love Maury. Uh, but uh, this was, I always say Finding Cheek is kind of the, the bookend to Tuesdays with Maury because it was 25 years later. And um, in one case, I was sitting alongside an old dying man who was teaching me amazing lessons about life. And Finding Chica, I was sitting alongside towards the end as she passed away, a, a dying seven-year-old girl who also taught me more about life than, than anybody probably shy of Maury. So um, that's my answer. Wow. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, it'd probably be hard to top a uh, personal connection for you to top that book. Well, I mean, I just think your career is so fascinating um, and you've been generous with your time. So we'll, we'll, we'll bow out here, but thanks so much for, for joining us here for, for a full half hour. This was great. Um, again, everyone, uh, Mitch Albom's new book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat um, is out now. Uh, so, you know, pick it up here uh, for, for the holiday season, maybe a good gift for someone. And then uh, don't miss Tuesdays with Maury at Theater J here in DC, the, the stage version that if you read the book, loved it, or if you've never seen it, um, it it'll be a, a touching show to to go see for sure so hey mitch thanks so much for for doing this this is a blast yeah well, it's a pleasure also just let me add that i'm going to do a a talk at theater j on november 30th at 7 30 and uh actually i think they're selling tickets for that that you get a you get a copy of book with the tickets so you could kill a couple birds with one stone and uh get a chance to do a longer talk about the whole probably tuesdays with maury as well as the stranger in the lifeboat at uh 7 30 on november 30th at the Ed Lavich, DC, JCC over at 16th and Q. So maybe I'll get a chance to see you, Jason, if you come by. Are you going to do the whole talk sitting in a lifeboat? <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. That would be a good prop. I could just kind of sit in a boat with an oar and tell the story. That would, you've given me a great idea there. Let's see how the theater can handle it. Yeah, but I don't know if it'll be really comfortable. <laughs> 
but, but uh, all right, cool. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I, we appreciate it. And we look forward to even the next book. Keep those ideas churning. You're great. Thank you so much. See you soon. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.